Hey guys, welcome back to another episode here of the Mind Mate podcast. Still in France, uh, still uh, juste dans le sud, d'Angers, which is, uh, I think it's French for um, just in the south of Angers, which is three and a half hours south of Paris as well. So loving it here, it's beautiful. I hope where you currently are, it is beautiful too. Today we have a mad podcast for you. I've been so excited to get this one out. Uh, it is the interview that I did with Wayne Schwoss, who is the CEO founder of Pucker Up, which is all to do with mental health and raising the awareness of a, of a very important cause. He was obviously a former AFL star, played for the Sydney Swans, and it was really interesting having a chat with him because he said he was diagnosed with depression in 1993, the year I was born, actually, so uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, and he said he just hit it for a very long time because he felt um, maybe due to the social stigma of what it means to be a man, he he couldn't he couldn't speak up and he couldn't talk to people about it. Um, fortunately for myself, when I was going through some mental health issues, I felt a lot freer to talk about them. Um, and I don't know personally whether or not that was to do with the social stigma, my upbringing, or my own personal psychological issues. There are obviously many many factors with these things, but. Um, I, um, I found it very, very uh, beneficial to talk, uh, especially in the, in, the, um, in the initial stages. And um, when you don't feel like you can talk, it really does make things worse. And there's actually a lot of research. There's a specific study that I'm thinking of now, and I don't know the specifics of it, although it is a specific, specific study. <laughs> um, it was talking about the, uh, the Holocaust survivors that spoke about their distress and their psychological trauma and, and how much better off they were a year after talking about it as opposed to the ones that didn't talk about it. And if you want to reach out to me and, and look that study up, you can because I'd love to know the details on it. But there are lots and lots of studies that talk about the positives of open and honest communication. But anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm digressing here. So Wayne Schwoss, pretty, I was, to be honest, I was a little intimidated by him when I uh, when I was first having a chat with him, he's just a he's a real he wasn't putting on a facade at all. He's he's an absolutely sensational human being. I, I only have known him for uh, for forty five minutes now, but we go back and forth on on social media every now and then, just with some um, updates for the release of this podcast. And he's he's nothing but genuine. But um, I guess it was probably my own um, ideas about who he was that had me intimidated a little bit, but within two minutes of chatting with him, we were just on the same level straight away. And to some degree that coincided with our collective experience of OCD. And the way he talks about it was um, super refreshing and, and, um, and very real. And I knew it was real because I could relate. And I really hope that you get that out of this show. Someone who, you know, as he would say, has this, you know, there is, you have this idea of who he is um, as, a, as a star in the limelight, but he's a human being just like you and I, and and that's great, you know, that really is great. So without further ado, oh, one final thing, no, all of my podcasts you can watch on my YouTube channel. This is on my YouTube channel. This is a great conversation. You can watch it. Uh, I, I try to film them at the same time, purely for your benefit, and also for mine, you know, so when I'm a, an old grandpa, I can show my kids that, uh, you know, I used to be a six out of 10, and now, obviously, when I'll be a grandpa, I'll be a three. Well, a strong four, maybe. So, without further ado, guys, I give you Wayne Schwartz. From this distant vantage point, 
earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, preserve, cherish, the only home we've ever known. The Pale Blue Dot. We get ready to release it. Yeah. So hopefully, end of September, early October, we'll start releasing Series 2. Yep. And do you have, like, um, specific things you talk about? Or is it series, oh, series 1 was the um, interviews with high-profile people. Yeah. Series two, I want to do a minimum of 36 episodes. Yeah. But it's all around uh, tools and help-seeking strategies that people can use because so many people don't know what to do. Yeah, for sure. Still don't know what to do. Yeah. Um, so it's about educating people about mindfulness, meditation, exercise, mm. um, um, sleep, gut health, diet, all that sort of stuff. So it's really every episode will be a different topic mm. which educates people about okay what is mindfulness what is meditation why is exercise so important talking to a gp because the question i got another question this morning i get asked so many times by people who come to me mm. for advice mm -hmm. i'm not a gp i'm not a professional mm. it's not my job but so many people don't know where to go mm. so it's really about educating people around okay how can you begin to prioritize your mental health yeah absolutely yeah a lot of people don't don't know what to do well, mate, I think that's a great way to start off yeah. the show. So, Wayne, thank you, mate. Such My a pleasure. pleasure. Yeah, pleasure. welcome to the, uh, the Mind Mate podcast. Um, I suppose the first question I want to ask um, is basically kind of, you know, um, takes on what you just said there. You're, you know, someone who's very fit and you're someone who, um, who, you know, you were talking about before, little things that you can actually do to better your mental health. You had exercise under the go, you know, you had your, your, your diet and all this sort of stuff and then you kind of found a little spot there of, um, of lulling yourself. What what was your background? Why are you so interested in, um, in helping people now yourself? Well, it's out of necessity because I've been on a mental health journey for 24 years now. So um, my mental health is something that I need to manage and maintain consistently. Um, so for those who may not know, I was diagnosed with depression, I've had anxiety, and I've battled with obsessive compulsive disorder on and off during that entire time battle is probably not the right word now because um, I manage it and um, I manage it because I need to my health is really important and my health is my responsibility mm. so I need to and I think I'm getting better at it I think I'm getting much better at it of prioritizing my mental health but I've also recognized uh, that I've because of what I've done previously in a sporting context, it's given me a platform. So I want to use that platform as much as I can to leverage the conversation and use that vehicle to be able to educate and impact other people. So mm. it's two parts, one, my own health, but secondly, using the platform and the vehicles that I have available to me to make sure that I try to educate and empower other people to do the same thing. And do you find in turn that um by using your platform and you know trying to provide a platform for other people, it also becomes very therapeutic for yourself. Yes, it does. Um, you know, the number one reason why I do what I do is because it's important to me. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, second is to hopefully lead by example. If if I'm trying to educate other people, and I'm not living what I'm educating, then I'm a hypocrite. Mm. So it's really important that I'm authentic with regards to what I'm trying to teach and educate other people to do. Um, in my own life 
but there are times where it's a little overwhelming Absolutely. because there are a lot of people that are reaching out and making contact who are really struggling with a whole host of different things. And one of the things that I wrestle with a lot is that I'm not a professional. I'm not a GP. That's not my role and mm. it's not what I'm trying to do. So um, it's really about making sure that I'm not only managing my own mental health, but I've got barriers there that I'm not prepared to compromise mm. um, with regards to my own health. Mm. And I've got, to be, I've got to be mindful of that consistently. Mm. Mate, it's actually really interesting. I didn't know the OCD side of it as well. Do you mind um, moving into that area as well? That's something that I um, previously battled with for a good couple of years there myself. So um, I love having that sort of discussion. Yeah. So um, my obsessive compulsive challenges have been around thoughts. Yeah. Thoughts of uh, hurting people close to me, thoughts about hurting myself, and thoughts about harming people. And um, I've never acted on them. I've never, I've never, I've never taken a thought and followed it through. But the thought itself has been something that I've grappled with a lot. Mm. Um, again, with there's a few things. Number one, I invested considerable time with a psychiatrist for four and a half years whilst I was living in Sydney. Um, to understand depression, understand anxiety, and understand obsessive compulsive disorder, and how are these conditions impacting me? Um, and and the the obsessive compulsive disorder is very intrusive, as I'm sure you would know, yeah. um, without knowing what your condition involved. But when when you have a thought about potentially hurting yourself or somebody else, whether it's a loved one or a complete stranger, these thoughts can come into your head randomly. Mm. There's no plausible reason as to why they come in. But they come in, and because of the graphic nature of the thought, I would then start to justify or seek justification um, that it was only a thought. Mm. And that feeds the cycle. Um, I wasn't able to break that repetitive rumination, which underlines the value of working with a professional to learn the skills and develop the confidence to be able to challenge that thought process. But I can, I, I, I still have every now and again thoughts where I pull up at a set, a set of traffic lights, and if I'm having a period where I'm quite anxious, these thoughts tend to be a bit more intrusive. Mm. I'll pull up at a set of traffic lights, mm. and people will walk across, and I'll have a thought about hitting the accelerator. Mm. Now that's not a rational thought, mm. um, but when I'm under stress and if I'm, I'm, I'm quite anxious, I'll think about that obsessively. Mm. I'll think. That's a really bad thing to think. Why would I do that? Mm -hmm. I've never done that. But the thought feels so real, it mm. gets so strong, that I have to go back to a certain strategy that I implement. Yep. Um, I've never done it, as I said before. But these are the type of things that I've dealt with on and off for 24 years. Yeah, yeah. And were they... So they do... Fuck, I've got a lot of questions for you now. <laughs> um, they... Um, do they, so they get worse in, in times of higher stress? Is it feeds that sort of that yeah, feeling? Yeah, if, if, um, if I'm anxious, uh, so if I go back, I, I made a decision almost 100 days. I'm not a big drinker, mm. but um, I have used alcohol to cope. Yeah. There's no question about that. But I made a decision, it's almost 100, it was, it was Anzac Day Eve, I went out with a few mates and 
really drunk and it wasn't what I intended to do, but I did. Woke up the next day and said, this is bullshit. This impacts my mental health. Mm. Alcohol's a depressant. I've known that for years. Mm -hmm. I'm not a big drinker, but under stress, it's not uncommon for me to go for, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten weeks where I'm having a couple of beers or a couple of glasses of red wine every night. Mm -hmm. Now, in isolation, a couple of reds or a couple of beers, not a big deal. Mm -hmm. But you do that for two months, three months. Every single night you're drinking, Mm. it impacts my ability to get quality sleep means that I wake up in the morning, I'm always tired. Mm. I then beat myself up because I've had a drink the night before and I've drunk for the last two months. Mm. So that starts to erode how I feel about myself, my confidence, my self-worth, my self-belief, all of those type of things. Then that impacts my ability to have the energy to work. I do a number of different things. Um, That then impacts my ability to exercise. Um, I'm a cyclist, I'm obsessed about it. So all of these things start to snowball and impact on my overall health and well-being. So what then tends to happen is that um, I start to get anxious and I get agitated and I know those symptoms well and if I don't start to deal with the issues that are underlying the feelings, Mm -hmm. then I can fall back into a mild case of depression. So um, I made a decision um, almost 100 days ago I don't drink. Um, I prioritise my sleep. What that means is... If I've had one or two late nights, and when I say late, 11.30, yep. 11 o'clock, yep. I have to go to bed early right. the next night. Um, I eat a predominantly plant-based diet. Mm. Um, I, the only meat I eat is chicken and sushi, um, but I eat no red meat. Um, I exercise a lot, um, indoor trainer. Um, I talk to my wife a lot. I talk to my GP, and to a less extent, I talk to my dad. Mm. I talk to my chairman. Um, who I've known for 14 years, if I'm not feeling well. Um, and I, I recently, about two months ago, went back on medication. Right. I went to my GP, said, these are the things that are going on. I need to prioritise my mental health. Mm. Um, and again, just saying the fact that I went on medication is something that I still grapple with, not from the point of view of taking it, because yep. I'm comfortable with that. Totally. But still this nagging thought and fear in the back of my mind, well... If I tell people, what are they going to think? Mm. Fuck that. Yeah, 100%. I've got to tell people because if I'm encouraging other people to do the things that I am in, in, and trying to educate them and, and, and support them to do, and I'm not living this, then I'm a hypocrite. Mm. So I've been on medication probably the last eight weeks. Yep. It's helped. I've recalibrated. Um, and I don't know how long it'll take it for, but it, at some point I'll stop taking it and I'll have things under control. But if I need to go back on medication periodically, then that's what I'm going to do Mm. because my mental health is my number one priority. So do you feel like, and just to wrestle with that, I guess that ego or that monkey mind in in your head, do you feel like sometimes when you feel like you're getting better, that medication, I guess, describes itself as a a crutch that you'd be like, fuck, I can just get rid of this shit, you know? But then if you feel like you do and you want to start pushing yourself off it, you feel like you're trying to cling to something. Because I know that with me, when I had um, OCD, so my OCD was, um, I, I used to get things, so um, they call it puro, when you just get those 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 thoughts specifically, you know? Um, and I had it with different things, um, and compulsions would come. But specifically, it was about very similar to yourself, like hurting people, like punching babies, mm. doing really fucking weird things. Mm. And then these really aggressive sexual thoughts as well. Like I constantly fear that I would somehow change my sexuality or want to like do aggressively sexual things to people that like I, 
you know, I like my, my family members and people that I didn't know. And it, it's, it's a really weird thing because it, it undermines the values that have grown with you internally and externally for your whole life. So you, you start to lose a sense of who you are, you know? <laughs> um, but the, the, the thing I wanted to ask was, yeah, do you feel like, um, you know, that medication kind of offers itself as a crutch? No. no, I don't see it as a crutch because I see the medication as a part of my strategy. Yeah. It's, it's part of a holistic plan. Mm. Sleep, exercise, communication, diet, mm. um, medication, if and when I need that. Mm -hmm. I don't, and, and I've, I've, look, I've, 14 years I've been uh, out, I guess is the word, where I've, I've, I've fully disclosed my situation, what I've gone through. And in that time, I've, I've supported and helped a number of people that have been close to me. And when it comes to medication, I have very deliberately sat down with people that have been beginning that journey of recovery and all of the different things that come with it. And I've been very clear that medication is not a happy pill. Mm. It's not something that fixes everything. Medication... Mm in my experience, just helps with stabilising the mood, which then puts you in a position where you can do the real work. And the real work is the, sure. the counselling. Yeah. Right? And making lifestyle changes. So I see medication as a, a, as a part of a strategy, which includes all of the things that I've talked about. And I choose when I think that I need it. Mm. And I chose eight weeks ago to go to my GP, have a conversation and talk to him about what had been going on. Mm. And I, I, I look, I, I'm not, I'm far from perfect. Mm. But what I have now is I have an internal checklist. If I'm not sleeping well, if I'm not exercising, if I'm drinking, if my diet's poor and if I'm not talking and I'm working too much, mm. then my mental health will start to suffer. Mm. So I've got a checklist that I can go, when I start to feel anxious, I can go, okay, I can stop. I can sit down with my wife and my GP and go, how much are you working? I'm working too much. Mm. I'm not getting enough sleep. I've stopped exercising. Um, and exercising is really important because there's the physical uh, aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But exercise is far more important for me emotionally. Mm. I ride a bike because my bike is my freedom. It's the place where I go. I can think clearly. I can get clarity. I can just relax. I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. I tick the box from a physical perspective. But most importantly, it's my, it's, it, I have a really strong emotional connecting connection to cycling. Mm. If I don't do it, I get anxious mm. and it impacts every area of my life. So I've got a checklist that I can fall back to. And invariably, when I'm anxious and I'm not starting to feel well emotionally, I can identify one of those things or a number of those things that I'm not doing, mm -hmm. which then puts me in a position where I can begin to address them really quickly. Um, and if you... If we were doing this interview eight weeks ago, I was very anxious, mm. I was withdrawing, I was very stressed, having a lot of internal conversations, still fulfilling all of my commitments, but in an eight-week period, I turned that around. Mm. And I do that. And, I, and the other thing that I'm starting to think about now is that it's seasonal for me because right. I don't like winter. Yeah. I hate it. I'm an outdoors person. I love the warmer weather. I love the sun. Mm. And in winter... Um, normally I stop exercising because it's too cold mm. on the bike. So I bought a wind trainer because I hadn't ridden for five weeks. And I came home one day and I said to my wife, Rachel, I said, I'm not, I'm not dealing with this really well. She goes, what's the matter? I said, I haven't ridden the bike for five weeks. Mm. 
So I've got to ride my bike, I do that inside. Mm. And when I've been reflecting this year about what's happened annually, it's mm. almost as if I get to winter and things change. Mm. So it says a lot is about why we've got so many Irish in Australia, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's look, everybody's different. And I think my answer just my answer then mm. is more about I just have a greater self awareness. Yeah. For I, sure. I know what works and I know what doesn't work. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I'm not prepared to compromise that. Mm. Whereas for 12 years I did. So when did, when did it, when I guess did you become aware that um, this was impacting your life negatively? Uh, I was diagnosed on the 9th of August 1993 with depression. But if I go back probably three or four, maybe five years before that, there were periods where I have these days weeks of it was like a mist would float in of overwhelming sadness mm. but i had no i had no skill and emotional intelligence to recognize yeah hang on that's not normal mm. but i saw that as normal mm. because i i just thought well that's that, for some reason this happens mm. i don't know why it happens the mist would roll in it would sit with me and then it would eventually move as though the wind moved it on yeah yeah so yep. I go, why am I really sad? I'm really sad. I mean, I don't know what I'm sad about. Playing footy, I'm in a relationship, I'm getting paid, all this sort of stuff. But um, I was taught to be a good football player. I was educated to be a great sports person. Mm. I was never taught or educated around emotional intelligence as yeah. a man in particular. So as a young adolescent male turning into a immature man, mm. I had no intelligence or skill set or education to recognize that 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 is not normal mm -hmm. and you should be talking to somebody about what you're feeling mm. so there's probably a period of somewhere between three and five years where if i go back to the date of diagnosis where it was starting to impact me mm. but i just didn't have the ability to recognize it so diagnosed in august of 93 and then for the following 12 years it impacted every area of my life yeah. Every area. Of Including life. on field. Oh, you have no idea. Yeah. I, I, I played the final 184 games of my career, 282 league games, hiding the fact that I had mental health conditions mm. and swimming in the shame that came with that. Yeah. Mm. It's, yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's This, this is why it well, is so it's, good it's, to... It's, it's just wrong. Yeah. But well, I'm not being criticised criticizing that I'm not being critical of myself but when you think about it rationally and pragmatically mm -hmm. if that was any other condition there's no way I would have I would have hid that for 12 years mm. there's no way I would have had any shame associated with that so why did you have the shame because I was a male yeah. I was playing AFL footy and I grew up in an environment and a, and a country and a culture where from around about the age of eight nine and ten you're conditioned mm. don't be soft don't be weak don't be vulnerable don't show don't show um uh, insecurities don't be emotional and don't cry mm. and crying is associated with losing respect so um through most of my life i had this expectation of what it's meant to have been a man or what it means to be a man mm. And they're not any of those things that I've just talked about because men 
and I, we, I saw myself, I needed to be strong, you know, I'm a competitor and I'm an athlete um, uh, and I want to succeed. And, and central to all of that is this, this thing called respect. Mm. So my, the respect of my mates, of my father, of my family, friends, complete strangers was fundamental to my self-worth and how I perceived myself. Mm. And to be vulnerable and to be emotional and to cry was not acceptable. And people that men that behaved in that way, I saw them as weak. Mm. And I think society exponentially conditions men of all ages and backgrounds to behave in a similar way. Mm. And uh, what I'm trying to do now and the way that I live my life, it's important that I'm emotional. Absolutely. It's important to me that I cry. I, I, I still don't cry easily, um, but there are things that happen in my life. The documentary which we're creating around our bike ride, I've, I've had to watch it um, over the weekend and there are two moments where I'm talking and I'm crying in the vision and I start crying. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of that anymore because I was ashamed of that for a long time because I thought that was weak. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm consciously trying to always look at ways of reconnecting emotionally. Even if that means people judge me negatively, then so be it. Mm. Because not being emotionally connected for 12 and a half years almost killed me. Mm -hmm. Well, that doesn't serve me well. That expectation of other people in society of what I should be like as a man, that's bullshit. Mm. This is who I am. Because this is important to me. Mm. And I'll take that risk if people want to judge me differently by being emotionally connected and expressive. And the irony about what you said before is you were trying to serve all these people to gain respect, but you never said once self-respect. No. You know, you never had any of that, you know? No. Um, I lost it. Yeah, absolutely. And I also don't understand why in this day and age, well, I mean, it, 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 you know, things like pucker up and all this sort of thing are changing this a lot, which is sensational, you know? But um, it's funny how these things have come about where to be a man and to be a masculine man, it's like you don't cry, you don't be a soft piece of shit, like you play fucking footy and you do all this sort of stuff. But if you're trying to, because for me it was, um, I wanted to make AFL so badly, you know, I wanted to do all this because then I would get all the, all the chicks and then I'd have all the money and it was serving all these egotistical externalized values, you know, that I wasn't even, I was completely unconscious, you know, I was a young kid, you know. Um, but with reflection and with hindsight, everything's 2020, you look back on all this sort of stuff and you go, not once was I actually trying to serve who I wanted to be as a man. And I think to some extent that emotional intelligence and, you know, that jargon like vulnerability and all this sort of stuff still, still takes on a slightly feminine look, you know, or it's like a, not a masculine look. But if you can actually really feel those emotions and understand when they arise and when they manifest and understand your own vulnerability you start to lead a life that's more authentically you Mm. and then you can actually have a conversation like this which i would totally deem as a very masculine conversation well it's just a very open conversation Mm. you know because it's it's authentic Mm. you know and it's it's not trying to be something that you're not trying to be something you're not you're trying to say hey look this is who i am as a dude like i'm really good here i'm also really shit here but i recognize that i'm actually trying to build towards something that's probably more empowering for me and and hopefully the viewer you know Mm. yeah i think there's a lot in that um, there's, you know, I've been I, I, I've been talking for fourteen years about my journey and my experiences all over this Australia, and I, I start all of my presentations in the same way, and that is I ask 
I ask a series of questions, and one of the questions that I ask to women to begin with, and the men in the audience, mm. what are the characteristics and traits we expect, we respect and accept women for possessing? Mm. And not surprisingly, they're all the feminine characteristics and traits. Caring, compassionate, loving, nurturing, empathetic, um, emotional, connected, mm. spiritual, all of those things. They talk and they cry a lot more than what we do. And, and then I park that, and then I ask a similar question to the men in the room, and also encouraging the women to contribute. What are the characteristics and traits that we accept and respect men for? Strong, stoic, resilient, tough, hardworking, loyal, trustworthy, a man's man, unemotional. Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and this is consistent. Then I bring, them to, I bring the two together. Because women of all ages and all backgrounds are some of all of those things that we accept them for and respect them for, but they're also strong, stoic, resilient, they're protectors, they're providers. We don't judge them for that, mm. nor should we. But all, all the time in every presentation that I deliver, the same characteristics and traits come up for men. Mm. And my question, and part of what I'm trying to, what, what I and our organisation, Pucker Up, is trying to do, is to disrupt the status quo. Mm. And the status quo is this. Why, where's the book written by an author and published in what year that says a man can't be all of the things that we are expected to be, mm. as well as soft, nurturing, loving, caring, compassionate, empathetic, emotional, have the ability to cry and talk. Mm. Men get judged vastly differently because of those things, those same characteristics and traits that women are respected and accepted for. Mm. So how's this serving us right mm. now as men yeah. in the modern world? Fucking no good. Mm. Why? Because by the end of today, we'll have lost seven people to suicide. Six are men. Mm. So this, this, this conditioning that we're all subjected to is not serving men well. Mm. Because if I look at my own example, I was comfortable talking about safe topics. I could talk to you about footy. I could mm. talk to you about work. I could talk to you about friendship. Mm -hmm. I couldn't talk to you about feelings, emotions, thoughts. Mm, yeah. Why was I stressed? Mm. I didn't have the skills or the emotional intelligence to be able to sit down with people in my life and say, I'm struggling. Mm. I'm feeling this. I'm thinking this. Mm -hmm. I'm behaving in this way because of this. I didn't have the emotional intelligence. Couple that with men don't talk. Mm. Well, that, 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 that environment nearly killed me. Mm. So that doesn't serve me. Mm. So the fact that we're sitting here now, two mild strangers, having an open conversation is a conversation that I fundamentally believe every person, man and woman, of all age and all background and all religions and all beliefs, should and must be having as regularly as they possibly can. Absolutely. Because we need to create environments that are safe and supportive, that allow men to connect and communicate without any judgment. Mm. Because... That's it. We'll have lost six more men today. Yeah. And why we have this explosion of violence, domestic violence, crimes being committed by predominant, predominantly men, and I'm not condoning what these people do because those things that they do are unacceptable and abhorrent. How can we expect a different outcome when men who make these decisions and behave this way have such a narrow, limited ability of emotional intelligence mm. to behave and respond to stress. Absolutely. Not condoning what they do. 
But how about we create an environment that allows men to feel, express, connect and think without any shame or guilt? Mm. Let's, let's expand their emotional intelligence. Let's give them the tools where they can go, stressful situation, I'm not going to act out in anger or violence. Mm. I can actually talk. I can allow myself to feel what I'm feeling at the moment and put my hand up and ask for help. Absolutely. The outcomes are significantly better. But unfortunately, we still live in an environment and a culture and a world that judges judges men vastly differently. And, that, and that's killing men. And where, like, where did that... So I'm 25, so I was born in 1993, actually. Um, um, where, where do you think this came about? Where, where, where did this... I guess, ridiculous understanding that a bloke should be all the things that we've spoken about come from? I don't know. Well, I think, I think we're a product of our environment. And I don't want to... You know, my dad's 75. And my dad is a product of his environment. And that is that you internalise stuff. You don't talk about mm. these type of things. Um, you don't show emotion. You don't show vulnerability. I love my dad dearly. Mm. He's been a great person in my life. But the way that he was brought up was the way that I was then brought up. Mm. And I don't want this to be in any way putting any responsibility or blame on my dad. But I have made a conscious decision with my 11-year-old son that we are connected emotionally, yeah. that we talk, that we express ourselves. You know, a small little thing... Um, that I'll share with you is, is on the weekend I, I had to take him up to uh, Ballarat for his, um, for his sport. And because I work most weekends during football season, it was a rare day that I got to spend with him in the car. And we talked mm. and we laughed and we had fun and we connected. Um, and I tell my son every day how much I love him and I kiss him and we hug each other all the time. And we, all, we, we often talk about the value and importance of crying. Mm. And he said to me at the end of the day, he goes, Dad, I really loved spending time with you today. That was fantastic. And to me, I'm getting a bit emotional thinking about it now, but mm. I want to create as many of those moments for my son because if I can equip him with a, 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 a level of emotional intelligence where he grows up understanding, accepting and knowing that we talk mm. as men. Mm. We ask for help, we offer help, we cry, we get angry, we get upset, we throw our bat and ball out of the cot, mm. and we express ourselves. That's the greatest responsibility I've got for my son, mm. is to give him the skill and the environment where he connects emotionally. And he carries that with him for the rest of his life. Mm. Because at some stage, life will challenge him. Mm. And I want him to cry. I want him to pick up the phone and say, Dad, can I come and talk to you? Can we catch up? I want him to be able to connect with his mum, connect with his partner at some stage when that time arrives. I don't want him to suppress his emotions mm. because that's dangerous. And I think more broadly, um, you know, there's enough research that supports the argument that boys and girls are born just as emotionally connected and expressive as each other. And, you know, we could, and I ask this in all of my presentations to the men. Who can remember a time before the age of 10 where you hurt yourself, you cried, you weren't ashamed, you weren't embarrassed, you ran to mum or dad, you got cleaned up, you needed that physical connection, you needed to be patted on the head, told you'd be okay, band-aid on, away you go, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And you felt good about that. Yeah. And then I ask another question. Who behaves in the same way now? Mm. Most men don't. Mm. What changes if we're born that way? What changes is the expectation that is placed on us mm. that we have about ourselves. 
So if we're born emotionally connected and expressive as people, humans, mm-hmm. put the sexes aside, mm-hmm. then it's the conditioning that changes us from continuing to behave that way because of fear. Absolutely. Judgment, respect. Mm. That That's not helping men. Mm. It helps women, not always, because women go through the same stuff. Mm. But it's not helping men. Mm. We need to encourage and create environments for all men of all ages, but especially the next generation of boys coming through mm-hmm. where it is normal and acceptable mm. to behave in that manner. Totally. Because if we don't, we're going to have the same outcomes that we are currently trying to grapple with. Mm. And that's not acceptable. No one wins. So what about with... Uh Social media. What's your, I guess, dance with your with your son with social media, and I guess the junk values that um, he may be um, exposed to. He's not on social media. Right. He got a phone uh, three days ago. Oh yeah, Nokia three ten. No, he, he got an iPhone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, a hand me down, but it's for phone calls and text messages to my wife and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, um, he doesn't have any social media platform. We won't do that until he gets to 13, same age as his twin sisters who are now 15. Yep. Uh, in regards to my kids, my girls, it's a constant battle. I'm right. very mindful of it. So we have a lot of conversations around the impact of it, the dangers of it. Mm. Um, I think for kids of my children's age, they're born into a world where social media is such a big part of their life. Mm. Uh, but um, I, it worries me greatly as a parent not only for my kids, but for a lot of kids, because their self-worth and self-confidence is largely being driven by the number of likes, followers, and positive comments. Absolutely. Um, and that's not a true reflection of life. No. Conflict resolution is done at the end of a fingertip in a screen. Mm. That's not always productive. Bullying doesn't stop once the school has finished for the day. It's 24 yeah. hours a day, seven days a week. Um, so I think that's a universal challenge. Um, in regards to what I do, if I'm being honest... Um, there are still moments where it's about approval, how many followers, how many likes. I, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I wrestle with that. I, I'm, I'm prolific on social media because my number one priority is impact. Mm. Is it great to get more likes on a photo that I put up? Yep. Is that a reflection of me? No. It may be a reflection of the message in the in the piece that I've posted. Is it? Um, is it there's no better I don't do it for the validation but when I get a message from somebody who I've never met thanking me and Pakala for the work that we do because Mm. it's changed their life or in some cases it's saved their life Mm. that's why I do what I do absolutely Uh, this is hard work I feel a responsibility to the community that we're growing that I've continually got to put stuff up but there are days if I don't feel like it, I won't do it because mm. I can't compromise my own health. So the platforms and the networks are there. So we're going to leverage them to have as greater impact as we possibly can. Um, and it's a, it's about how many lives can we impact positively or how many lives can we save versus whether we got 150 or 450 people liking our posts. Mm. So it is what it is. So we want to leverage that as much as we can. And I, I guess, like, obviously I'm not a parent, um, but I, I think it'd be, it's, it'd be a constant battle as well because at the same time, you know, we, res- we respect um, 
But with anxiety, something with like with anxiety, if you're constantly running away from the outside world, you just get agoraphobic. And I'm like, I'm definitely there. I'm sure you've had those moments yourself for sure, you know? And there has to be a moment of time where you go, fuck this fear, like I'm just gonna do it, whatever. And so much a part of that is with the OCD, you know? Just recognize the thought and let it come through and, you know, um, try to do things anyway and not hide away and compulse and all that sort of stuff. Um, but social media is such a funny one as well, you know, and I'm, I'm so grateful that um, I guess I was on the cusp of, of that time where I, 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 social media was, I guess, prevalent, but it wasn't really, I didn't really start using it until I was um, relatively fully developed, you know. Um, but it's a thing, you've got on one side, you know, as a parent, you're kind of like, I want to bring my children up in a world where they feel comfortable, vulnerable, but they also feel um, like they can be courageous and they can actually go out there and, and brave the wilderness. And on the other side, I've got to kind of say, you can't, you have to recognize that social media is, is completely externalized and you're, you know, the people that you follow, this is not them all the time. This is just their good side all the time, you know? Um, do you have those specific conversations with your kids? Um have conversations around the amount of screen time yep have conversations around the potential dangers um, have conversations around the importance of having interpersonal connections and mm. friendships which our girls do um, have you know one of the challenges of being a parent and I think this is universal is your kids tend not to listen to you too much <laughs> they'll listen to other people mm. So it's really, you know, it, it's the hardest thing that I've ever had to do, mm. ever, um, is be a parent and try to influence your children and educate them while at the same time giving them a loving, supportive home to grow up in. Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that technology has done, it's made a generation of know-it-alls. Mm. Kids are exposed to so much information, they can Google it, it's all online, um, you know, and this is not to be critical, but kids just seem to think they know all the answers. Yeah. You know, 14 and a half years of age, yeah. you know, fuck all about life. Yeah, it's true. You know? <coughs> Absolutely. Um, Mum and dad just, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a challenge that I constantly grapple with. And I think, you know, my, my kids don't see the wisdom in what we're trying to say. Mm. Um, but I'd rather, I'd rather, you know, be a pain in the ass, keep bringing it up, mm. than do what some people doing that is unlimited unfettered access for their kids i mm. mean i've heard of stories of kids being on their phones at 3am in the morning while mum and dad are asleep i mean mm. what the fuck yeah 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 it's well i mean a man of mine um runs i'll give him a bit of a plug he runs uh, beyond rest float tanks with sensory deprivation tanks yeah. and um he gets you know they try to get programs and young kids come in there all the time and um kids will often ask the people that work there, you know, can I jump on my phone halfway through? Like, can I bring my, my phone to the float tank? Yeah. So it's interesting you say that because um, I, I uh, purged myself off social media for um, oh, a few days, a little while. I just got sick of it. Just yeah. like, nah, nah, it's getting in the way. Yeah. And what was really interesting, when I took them all off my phone, it may not sound like a big deal, but when they're not there, you don't check. Mm. Right, so I would just use my phone for text messages to respond to emails or make phone calls. Mm. Outside of that, I didn't use my phone. And what I started to realise was how much or how invasive these platforms are in everyday life. But, and at the same time, 
I, I sat back in, like, it'd be, I'd be on a tram, I'd be on a train, I'd be at an airport, whatever. How many people are just on their phone? Mm. And when you're on the phones or the screens all the time, you're not giving yourself a chance to enjoy life. Mm. Because you're just at the end of a screen and you're engaging with that. That's, mm. not, that's not life. No. So I only have Instagram and I only have Twitter. I don't check them anywhere near as much as I used to. I've taken Facebook off. I don't have any other social media platforms. Um, and I, I, I have those other two out of necessity because of what Pucker Up does. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, no, it, it, they they get in the way. Well, we need to recognise how addictive they can be and com- potentially compulsive they can be. You know, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure this is accurate. But this could be a massive, just you know, whitewashing statement, but. Um, I read somewhere that um, for the time it takes you when you open Facebook or whatever, um, a big social media um, app, uh, to, to whether or not you've received a notification is pretty much a, uh, an approximate time as it takes to, for you to click a pokies machine for the numbers to come up. So, and you know, billions of dollars of marketing behind these, mm. these, these websites and social media platforms, <laughs> they, they're going to get you roped in. And you know, I mean, straightforward right there, the, the OCD is shit if I don't check my app. I may not be connected or whatever it is, you know? So does life still go on if we wake What's the, I mean, the question I would, I would ask anybody who listens to this, mm. what's the last thing you do at night before you go to bed? And what's the first thing you do when you wake up? Mm. If it's check your social media um, uh, platforms to see what's happened. Oh, you've got to have a good look. Right? So then, if you take that back, back a step, does, does the sun still come up in the morning if you have your phone out of your bedroom, have a shower, get changed, have a half an hour, an hour before you do anything. Mm. Of course it does. Mm. Has your day been negatively impacted? No, in actual fact, I would argue your day's actually probably got off to a better start. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Because if you put something up on social media and you go to bed and the last thing you've seen is a post and you've got not as many likes that you wanted mm. or you wake up in the morning and you thought, this is a great post, I'll get 200 likes in the morning, I mm. wake up and there's 70. Oh shit! Yeah. So you're flat already, right? So why do it? Yeah, exactly. Why do it? And I think, I mean, it, it becomes really scary when you, you know, you got you got a um, you're with a partner or something, and you're checking your phone before you're giving them a kiss or hugging them or letting well, you know you love go them. Go to any restaurant, go to any airport, go to any public gathering place, and have a look at how many people are in the company of other people and they're on their phone. Yeah. Right. It's alarming. So we've been never we've never been more connected, but we've never been more disconnected. Hmm. Hmm. Mate, we, we could talk for hours, but I, I really want to um, I want to get to Pucker Up. Um, give it, give us the backstory there. When, when did that? When did Pucker Up so come we about? We started in April of last year, um, and uh, we're into our second year, obviously. And um, we are about three weeks away from uh, finishing our documentary, which was a documentary that followed uh, thirty eight people on our bike ride from Sydney mm. to Melbourne earlier this year. So our, our vision is about creating the environments for every person to have authentic and genuine conversations about mental health and emotional well-being. Why is that important? Because when we can create safe environments that are supportive and non-judgmental, we give ourselves permission to strip all the bullshit away and to talk openly and honestly. Mm. When we do that, we can free ourselves of something that might be bothering us by getting the support, getting the professional help and addressing the real issue. Most people, and I was as guilty of this, operated at a superficial level. We all put a mask on and a Superman cape by the time we walk out the door every day because we worry about what people will think if they know that, you know, this part of my life is shit. What will they think? How will they react? And will they lose respect? Mm. 
So we are about creating environments that are safe and supportive, which encourage more people to talk openly. And what that really means is if we can get that right, then we'll be preventing people from thinking they have to end their life. Mm. We want to stop suicide because we think it's preventable. <clears throat> Suicide's an outcome to a crisis. So what have we done in 12 months? We delivered a suicide prevention bike ride in March of this year, which had a profound impact on the broader community and the people that were involved. We're doing it again next year. Uh, the documentary, as I said, the aim of that is to have it shown nationally. Um, it's not about a bike ride, but it's, it's about, it's a story that follows the journey of 38 people. Two thirds were strangers, and within six short days, we had them in a gym in Shepparton, and we had one of those authentic conversations, and it was a life-changing conversation for every person. Mm. And now, now, just reflect on the fact that 30 of the 38 were strangers six days earlier. And they shared things that they'd only shared with their husband or their wife. Mm. That's the power of these conversations. Uh, we're, um, we're looking at uh, partnering up with a, a leading organisation to begin to roll out uh, wellbeing programs within corporate Australia. Yep. Because I don't think corporate Australia is doing this really well at the moment. So it's about equipping people with the skills and education to prioritise their mental health. Um, and uh, we're looking at uh, a couple of other exciting opportunities um, which we hope to pilot next year. So we're, if, if, Pucker Up, if Pucker Up was another organisation that was working in the crisis area, we're noise. Mm. We don't want to work in there because most of the investment, the education and awareness in the mental health sector is all focused at the crisis end and it needs to be. But we don't believe people have to get in a crisis. So if we mm. can help people make the connection between their physical health and their mental health and give them the necessary tools and education, you can begin to look after your emotional health like you do your physical health. And what I mean by that is, if I don't feel well physically, I go to the doctor. Because mm. I know if I don't, I could get sick. Yeah, for sure. So if I don't want to get sick, I go to the doctor. Well, if you don't want to get emotionally unwell, you go to the doctor. Most people don't know how to make that connection, nor do they have the skill set and confidence to be able to recognise something that may be occurring, mm. which could be having an impact on their emotional health. So we want to operate in an area where we are fundamentally shifting the focus away from crisis. Mm. And we do that through education. Awareness is important, but we want to educate people by giving them disruptive opportunities to begin to understand their own triggers have the ability to recognise things in their own life and then begin to prioritise their mental health. <clears throat> and the other thing that we want to do is we want to really amplify this suicide prevention conversation. All of the people on our bike ride regularly come back to me um, talking about the fact that they now have the confidence and skill set to have conversations around mental health, mm. emotional wellbeing and suicide prevention mm. that they didn't have prior to the bike ride. Mm. So that's what we're focusing on. It's about education. It's about awareness. It's about giving people the tools and the skill set to be able to prioritise their mental health. Do you know what's really interesting about suicide? I had the um, pleasure of interviewing a bloke named Kevin Briggs, who was a patrol officer on the Golden Gate Bridge, and he would—I mean—that place is just rampant with it. You know, mm. um, I think there've been close to three thousand um, suicide attempts. You know. Um, 26 people have survived in that whole time since you know since it was there and all, all sort of thing. The most amazing thing he said to me was that it's actually very easy to talk someone off the bridge. You just have to 
open a conversation like this, you know? And I think um, even even the the umbrella of suicide is just so, so misunderstood. You know, people just think, oh, they're in a hole and they're going to top themselves off or whatever it is, you know? But, um, you know, he was talking about all these things. It's like people that just get to a point where they just don't feel like anyone cares and, and they in turn kind of feel like they're doing the world a favour, you know? And if something like that... I mean, that's just such a sad thing to hear, you know, that people actually want to be helping people by getting rid of them. It's just a terrible thing, you know, but for the fact that it's actually quite easy just to open up a conversation, be like, hey, look, like, I I, I want to listen, you know, like, just just talk, just talk, and I'll listen, you know. Um, if it's something, it's like, if it's easy to do, like, it's, it's unbelievable that it's actually taken to 2018 for organisations like Parker Up and all this sort of stuff to, to come about, you know. Um, did you have... Did you have many people opening up a dialogue of suicide attempts and things on that on that trip? Uh, yeah, we had one of our participants who talked about uh, a situation that he put himself in five years ago and he'd only ever talked to his wife about. Yeah. And he talked in front of a group of 30-odd people about it. Uh, I spoke to him earlier in the week and he is now starting to share that with other people. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, I mean been doing this for 14 years so I get people all the time either face to face or contacting me and, and talking talking about it you know suicide and talking about suicide is not an easy topic to talk about mm. but if we listen intently we don't judge and we just we, we, th- we show through our actions and our behavior that we are genuinely interested in listening to and trying to support the person who's in crisis and that's what it is. It's a crisis. It's a moment of crisis mm. where somebody is not thinking rationally. They're thinking irrationally. They don't have a pragmatic view of the world because there's so much internal stress that they think that this is the right option. They think sometimes this is the only option. And mm. they do think, because I thought it, that I was a burden to other people. So if mm. I eliminate myself, then those people don't have to worry about me anymore. Mm. doesn't work that way. Mm. Because you never forget the people that you lose. And our family's been impacted by suicide. So, you know, listening, it doesn't surprise me about this um, Golden Gate um, person that you interviewed, mm. Kevin. Kevin Briggs, yeah. yeah. Have you talked, do you know of Kevin Hines? Yeah, uh, well, he, he um, obviously yeah. does things with him, yeah. Great story, he's one of those survivors. Yes. So, you know, as, as uncomfortable as it is, sitting and listening and not judging somebody can be the very first tentative step to that person starting to see a possible way out for the moment of crisis. Mm. So if that was a family member or a loved one or someone you cared about, I'd like to think most people would do that. Mm. And if you were ever in that situation yourself, I'd like to think that you would like to have at least one person, whether it's a stranger or someone you know, just to sit there and support you through that moment of crisis. Mm. Because if we can open up that dialogue without being the professional, without being the person that's gonna um, help the person through that, that moment of crisis, it's a really important role, mm. um, and, and I don't—I genuinely don't believe people need to get into a crisis before mm. they start to think about asking for help. Mm. And that's—that's—that's that's, that's what we're about. Pucker up is—is—we is, is want to prevent suicide, and the way that we want to prevent suicide is shifting the focus away from crisis, normalising mental health and emotional well-being, helping people make the connection between the importance of their physical health and their emotional health, and then giving them the tools and skill set that allows them to be, begin to prioritise it. Mm. And I'll take it back to how we began the conversation. Prioritising sleep, 
good diet, exercise, communication. Um, if you're stressed and you're agitated and you're not sleeping well, go to the doctor. Mm. Go to the doctor as soon as you can. Have those conversations and create environments where we can talk openly and honestly. Mm. Fuck, mate. I could, I could talk to you all day, but I understand I've got to get you out of here. But, um, mate, um, finally, just, just to, I know we talked about social media before, but um, where can people find uh, Pucker Up and, yep. and, and give us something to plug for sure? So Pucker Up, is um, we have uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. So that's P-U-K-A-U-P. Um, we're prolific. Um, and, and I would encourage people to get involved in those platforms with us because uh, we invest a lot of time into creating helpful content. Um, Facebook is a great, safe environment for us. I've only had to remove two people mm -hmm. in two and a half years. So I won't compromise the integrity of that community. If anybody wants to join it, they are welcome. Mm. Um, it's, we, we, we share a lot of content there uh, where people can feel safe and supported. But if somebody joins that community and they're derogatory or they're, they, their behavior is not appropriate, then I won't make any excuses. They're out and I've done it twice. Yep. Uh, if people would like to uh, connect with me, they can. It's just my name, Wayne Swass, S-C-H-W-A-S-S, -S, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Um, but Instagram and Twitter is probably the two best. That's where I spend most of my time as an individual. Yep. We have a website. If people need professional support, puckerup.com, uh, hit the help tab and people can go and get contact details for some great organisations around Australia. And also importantly, our podcast series, which is spelled mm. the same way, available on iTunes and Podcast One. It's also accessible on the website. Um, series one is an a series of interviews with high profile people, but series two is the one that I'm really excited about. And that is uh, 36 episodes where we'll talk about all the different things that people can potentially do and start to understand sleep, diet, rest, exercise, fear, masculinity. We'll cover all of those topics mm. to help educate people around, okay, what are some of the things that I can think about investing so that I can now prioritize my mental health? And I would really encourage people to start to look at the podcast series. Mm. We'll hopefully start releasing series two late September, early October, because that's a way that people can begin to connect their mental health with their physical health. And no one has to get sick. Mm. No one. We mm. just need to help people make that connection. Mate. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, mate. Awesome. Appreciate the chat. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Cool. How'd you find it? Loved it? Anyone there? <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that one, guys. It was a great, as, as I said previously, it gets into it very, very quickly. And uh, yeah, it was, I felt like I had a bit of a buzz when I, um, when I walked out of there after, after having a chat with him. It was really, really cool. It was great to, it was a, yeah, it really was a, a historical moment for me in the podcast. It was, it was really exciting. So guys, if you do like the podcast and Number one, you want to reach out and say that you do. That's awesome. You can leave a rating and review on iTunes. That really helps me because I, I want to, pure and pure and simply, not only does it help the ego, but it actually helps me reach out to the guests that I want to reach out to and hopefully the ones that you want to have a listen to as well. So the more ratings and reviews that we have, uh, the more, I guess, those bigger guests, shall we say, can look into that. You know, we all, we all have an agenda these days. So it's totally cool, but... If, if this podcast is a little bit bigger and a little bit better, um, they can see that and hopefully it'll be worth their while uh, too. So if you could do that, that would be awesome, guys. Uh, 
I'm really getting excited about the blogs um, that we're, that I'm putting up and I'm loving your insights there as well. So please stay with me on the show. I'm loving it and I will speak to you next week. Bye-bye.